Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Progeny podcast special episode during the holy month of Ramadan. May Allah shower you with great blessings during this holy month. May Allah protect you and your loved ones and your families during this outbreak of the coronavirus. And inshallah we are protected and inshallah we are all coming out of this stronger. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined on this special uh, podcast, my dear friend Al-Hajj Rada John Vidadi, uh, who's a filmmaker. I've had the pleasure and honor of working with him, alongside him during a few projects. And inshallah we'll discuss uh, maybe production, uh, directing, making films, as well as uh, we'll look at uh, the media representation of Muslims, maybe the media representations of uh, non-whites, I can say. Uh, and inshallah we'll try and have this discussion uh, and inshallah you'll enjoy it. I'll welcome my dear guest. Assalamu alaikum, brother Raza. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Thank you for joining us on this special podcast. Uh, inshallah you and your family are well. Alhamdulillah, we all were, and I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Um, Raza, I want to start off by um, asking you something um, important. I've worked alongside you uh, during one of my favorite projects, which aired on Ahl Bay TV. Uh, it was, I believe, in 2013 or 14. You might remember better. Um, it was it, For me, it was the most... Um, hectic time producing and directing and working alongside yourself uh, with this project. It's actually the steps of Imam Al-Hussein in which we done a production about how uh, what steps Imam Al-Hussein took from uh, his hometown Medina and then towards Mecca and then towards uh, Karbala. We filmed that with uh, Sheikh Halli and we actually filmed that uh, in Iraq. Uh, over a period of, I believe, two weeks. It was hectic hours. It was literally having breakfast, no lunch or dinner, uh, and then having something uh, at the end of the night. We're talking 12, 14-hour shifts. Uh, but alhamdulillah, um, as you probably agree, the, the actual production when it came up, it was quite a really good production. You know, A lot of people enjoyed it. Until maybe last year during Muharram, Someone mentioned to me, you know, I watched the steps of Imam Al-Hussein and I learned so much. Uh, <clears throat> filmmaking is something that you've been doing for a long time. Uh, how did you get into that? That's my first question. So my first uh, love or kind of interaction uh, with filmmaking on a kind of academic or a learning level was from my A-level. So I uh, uh, completed my A-level, finished that and then did a university degree. Then went off for a while due to family uh, commitments and stuff like that. Came back, did a master's degree. And it was after completing the master's degree in film production. A um, couple of years later, Alhamdulillah, I had the opportunity to be involved with Ahla Bay TV and yourself and Sheikh Khilli and Ali Fadl. And one of the projects was we went to um, uh, Iraq and we went to all the major holy cities and we filmed, I remember, like you said, for days and days and days and hours and hours. And as much as it was uh, tough working conditions because I was trying to do multiple kind of um, roles, it was one of the most blissful and one of the most fulfilling um, uh, parts of uh, the time when I was working. For me, when you have someone that comes and tells you years on that I've learned something from a, a production that you participated in many years ago it kind of makes it all worthwhile 
maybe 10 days of hard work, but then this, you know, program that you produce that, you know, a lot of us don't know about what happened leading up to Karbala. We know about, you know, the 10 days, um, not even the 10 days, it's the one day or the two, three days that lead up to, to the actual afternoon of Karbala, but it's stretched over 10 days of Majalis programs. But the fact that you, you guys covered from, you know, the Medina and the Mecca and all the stories and interactions, and we did it with, you know, limited resources, but we managed to get something out there that is beneficial 10 years on. I think that's just testament to how much we really were committed to this kind of project and projects like it and how much we wanted others to benefit from it. So for my productions, I always want someone uh, to benefit from it, even years down the line. Um, obviously, sometimes because of due to um, limitations in production uh, costs and stuff like that, it may be just the story that you want to get out that has so much value that years on, years pass and people kind of appreciate it still. So for me, it's more about quality than say, a lot of people talk to me, oh, I don't have so many views on this kind of media project that I'm doing. I said, don't worry about the views. They will come later. You know, Nabi, uh, the prophet uh, Noah, he, how many people did he bring onto the path of uh, 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 God of the 950 years that we know about that he was uh, a prophet? It wasn't that many. So it's not necessarily always about numbers. It's about the quality and the intention of what you want to do. It's uh, important that you mention this, that it's sometimes about the quality. Um, and a lot of people don't know about the what goes on behind the scenes, what stress uh, ha happens behind the scenes uh, when you're trying to film something. Uh, especially, the, 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 for example, because again, this, this is something that we lack, which is the funding and the resources when, you, when we want to create these documentaries or these films. Uh, our biggest uh, hurdle is 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 the resources because a film a production like that you if someone has seen it <clears throat> would think that there's probably a 12 man production team they've got a lights person a sound person uh, a researcher a, a three or four different cameramen you know all all these different different people in their team for, to produce something like this where they'd be s surprised and shocked that this was done by <clears throat> one person and then someone else helping him with with with, with maybe just the the sound uh, if you remember you know i had to uh, at times we had to swap roles uh, with, with regards to sounds because you know you you have to also check the lighting and you have to check the the, the camera angle and you know there's there's a lot how much goes behind the scene is sometimes not appreciated uh do you feel that or, 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 or is that not the case? Especially because I know you've done quite a few uh, films that have become, we can say, known to a lot of people around the world. So it's interesting that you mentioned um, that time when I remember that we still have the pictures where I was holding a, a script for Sheikh Hilli in one hand. I had my kafiya, uh, chafiya uh, on my on on the camera, so I could see the screen because there was so much light in Bain al Haramain between Imam Hussein and uh, Hazrat Abu Fazl's shrine. There was all of this light coming in, and I think it was really you know uh, light filled day as usual. And then I had a reflector so that uh, Sheikh Hilli's face had the right level of light hitting it for the camera and you were on my side trying to make sure he, you know uh, you're producing and directing and listening to the sound and we have the picture of that i think uh, mullah ali father took the picture 
And it just, I always think back to that. And one of my friends who I've done a lot of productions with, he calls me a one-man camera crew. And for me, it's like, the thing is, we are not producing entertainment for the sake of entertainment. If I wanted to do that, I can go and join many other companies that have more more, um, uh, kind of like resources. But the point is, we're trying to produce stuff that other people are not producing, media content-wise. And the reason for that being is, the media that we want to produce and uh, and put out for people to utilize for many and many, this is almost like Sadaq Jari. This is how I see it. I don't see it as a kind of necessarily a business. And maybe this is why we as Muslims haven't figured out the full uh, methodology of how to be, uh, uh, um, attach and kind of mix business and this kind of propagation because what we're doing is tabligh this is the work of anbiya this is the work of awliya where they brought the religion to the people and so if you're looking at in that respect it's 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 for me almost like a a a holy struggle it's a holy struggle to do something that other people may find it hard to do because of lack of resources and financing and maybe lack of skills or whatever but for me, there, when I wake up and we get into those situations where a lot of people are like, well, why am I doing this? You know, it's, I, I do it because I know down the line people will benefit and down the line I will, I'll be honest with you, when I did a lot of the media stuff that I do, I, I do it in a, for a selfish way, for a for selfish reason. And what do I mean by selfish reason? I mean in the sense that when I leave this world, I, I was, I, I'm not a scholar, so I haven't really written books. I've written articles and stuff like that, but I haven't written books. I'm not a scholar. I'm not teaching religion to the people like so many of our uh, great scholars that we have. But one thing that I have passion for and I have a little bit of uh, ability to do is to pr- produce media content. And so I want to use my media content to be a testifier for my belief in the religion that we have and the path that it teaches us and count on it as a kind of, um, as a way of it saving me in, and I, and I, I always kid, I, I used to say, I have this one camera, DSLR, that if I pass away, it's been with me from the beginning, so it's seen Hajj, it has seen Ziyarat, it has seen the visitation of the Imams, and it's seen me do all productions that I have, put that on my chest, bury me in my kafan when I'm passed away, as a joke, but it, it talks about how for me, media and the stuff that I've done with Ahla Bay TV and other channels, it's a little bit higher than I'm just trying to produce media content. It's, it's a way of me connecting to something trans, transcendental, something spiritual, and me giving back to the community. And inshallah, outside of our smaller community, as in in London and in UK, to people in Australia, and mashallah, Ahla Bay TV has so many um, followers and, and viewers from around the world. You know, they benefit and inshallah, I want to be part of that spiritual path that Ahla Bayt TV and other channels are going down. May Allah prolong your life, my dear brother Reza. Uh, it's beautiful. You you mentioned that. And um, if you remember, we also filmed the documentary. And this comes to mind because you mentioned the camera uh, being uh, being asked for you to uh, ask for the camera to be buried next to you. If you remember this, um, when we filmed uh, the someone who who till today inspires me uh sheikh baqir sharif al-qarashi when we done a documentary about his library and his life uh, that came to mind now when when he sheikh baqir uh when he was in his will he wrote that bury <clears throat> bury my pen um with me because i've used this pen 
writing about the, and authoring hundreds of books about the Ahlul Bayt So subhanallah, this is a legacy. May Allah prolong your life, of course I say. Uh, but yes, there is that attachment that when you do um, an amal, when you do the, the media work that you do, the fact that it's it's got this uh, religious side to it, gives it um, I, I don't know it gives it, it gives it an edge because you know the, uh, the stuff that that yourself and many other great filmmakers that we have in our community there are a handful uh, is that you could be earning and I say this you know straightforward that you could be earning quite a lot of money maybe working for a different company or organization or filming production that's nothing to do with Islam but the fact that you're doing the work as you mentioned of awliya you're 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 propagating the message in a in a, in a way that i think is 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 touching people's hearts uh, and this brings me to to something a documentary that touched a lot of people around the world because uh, i remember you done a tour about this uh, and it was something that was spoken about uh, the documentary called if i'm not mistaken cities of light uh Tell us about about that because I remember there was there was quite a uh, around the time there was a buzz around around this documentary. Uh, you travelled, uh, I believe, to Australia, if I'm not mistaken, as well as Canada to to do previews, film previews of this. How did the idea come about, and what's the feedback you got when you were doing all these film previews? So that's the interesting documentary. Um, I produced that in two thousand. I filmed it in two thousand twelve. It was probably one of the. It was the second. A documentary I worked on feature length documentary and it was just self-funded and it was uh, it, 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 it was born out of a a um, Nia and Nazar that I did and I was going through some issues and I and I said to Imam Hussein Imam Hussein help my the issues that I'm going through to be resolved in the best way possible and I will come to you even if I have to crawl on the floor to get to you and alhamdulillah, things sorted itself out. And at that time, I didn't really have any funds to, to uh, participate in the trip. Uh, the funds were sorted out. And then I have my, my subjects, which were uh, Mullah Ali Fadel, uh, Sister Sa- um, uh, Sarah Bukhari, uh, Sayyid Hussein Makki. And I followed their story. And I wanted to tell the story, the, the visitation of the imams in a way that could be understood and appreciated by someone who doesn't necessarily have the knowledge and understanding of the different aspects of Shia Islam. So anyone could sit down and watch it and get something from it and appreciate why so many millions of visitors from around the world visit the uh, holy shrines that are in Karbala and also in Iran because we visit Mashhad and Qom as well. And participate in the whole journey in a, in a way in a way where I'm observing as opposed to trying to dictate, you know, what the reasonings are. Just observing what the people who are participating in this visitation what they're gaining from it. And we made a feature film, and Alhamdulillah, as you said, we we screened it in um, uh, Australia, in Canada, in Dubai. I even screened it in Iran. Um, I screened it in um, America and the UK. And what was interesting is when I screened it in Iran, the people who were watching it, this was a university, this is one of the top universities in Iran. It's Sharif University. It's like the MIT or the Harvard of uh, America. And one of the students was surprised because we had a, I would like to have a um, question and answer session with the audience afterwards. And she said that it's really strange because I didn't realize that 
the the Shias on that side, as in in England and the West, saw Shia Islam the same way as we did and believed in the same things. So not only was this film supposed to break misconceptions about Muslims who live in the West for the Westerners, it managed to break uh, misconceptions about Muslims who live in the West from the Easterners. So they saw that we have the same beliefs because sometimes there's a lot of um, kind of like news and propaganda that all the Muslims who live in the West are kind of sold out. And this is inshallah something that we can come to to discuss shortly. But it showed that, no, that's not the case. We have the same beliefs in the 12 Imams and the Holy Prophet. And, and this was really interesting for me that something that was supposed to do something else managed to do something extra that was beneficial. And again, that documentary, um, it hasn't actually never been released uh, officially. And maybe this is something that I, <laughs> I need to sort out now that there's, um, there's more, um, uh, hopefully, need for people who want to watch that. It's, it's about eight years old now, so the people in it have grown up a bit. But again, that documentary was born out of this spiritual connection that I have with my religion and the people who I believe inspire me. It's very hard to express the connection that an individual has with their religious belief and individuals who have uh who represent the religious belief even for a christian and that relationship a christian will have with for example jesus christ or mary mother of jesus or a jewish person jewish person has with moses or any of the prophets holy prophets it's very hard to express it so when we use media we're only kind of inspiring the viewer to have a understanding my my media that i like to uh, produce is mainly about inspiring the viewer to be inspired and to go and then investigate themselves i think it's very hard to use media to fully it's like being uh, on a majlis on a member so if you have muharram program the sheikh who comes or the speaker who comes they can't fully express everything that they spend. And, you know, you as Mustafa, someone who does a lot of speaking, you know, you spend months and months to get maybe three or four new um, lectures where you can teach people something new. It takes a lot of time to learn stuff and you condense it into that one hour or 45 minutes. You can't teach that person who's sitting in the member. And if you imagine there's someone who's 65 years old who's been sitting in, uh, in front of a member for 50 years of his life, and there's a 15-year-old who's only been coming to Majalis for five years of his life. How can you speak to various people in the audience at the same time and, and teach them things that they don't already know? So the whole point of the Majlis is to inspire. So when they go back home, they're like, you know what? I want to read and find out whatever is that subject that uh, was mentioned in the member, be it about prayer, about the responsibility of a Muslim, about the life of the Holy Prophet or the Imams or any of those kind of things. So my films is more about inspiring the viewer, be they Muslim or non-Muslim, to have that kind of desire to go and investigate themselves and find out. So it's, as much as I want it to be informative and slightly entertaining, it can't be fully uh, educational. It's just to inspire them and hopefully they'll go on. So all of these documentaries that I've worked with Ahl Bay TV and other channels and the stuff that I've done, as much as it brings something new for the viewer, hopefully, it's more about inspiring them to have that desire to go and investigate and learn themselves. Uh, beautiful. I always, uh, this is, it's a great point you mentioned that. I always say a good lecture is not only something that you can take away, but it makes you, it leads to some sort of action with yourself. 
So maybe it changes a habit within you or makes you pick up something uh, that you actually uh, can perform in action. So 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 I, it's very interesting that the way when you the way you think when you when you actually create a film or create a documentary is you want someone to actually take not only take something away from it but also lead that person into doing something extra maybe but my, I, w- I want to ask something which um, a lot of people have asked me and I've given them answers but obviously there's there's different answers to this question and that is you know we have we have the the rise of of, of platforms such as Netflix or Amazon Prime or, or Apple TV or and so on um, and you know, recently, for example, myself on Netflix, I've I I, I watch a lot of documentaries, um, uh, rather than just you know uh, stuff for t- entertainment like a series or something. I I something that that's that's, that's like a, a comedy or something. I I I I've got a nice now <laughs> list of documentaries that I, that I watch every night uh, because of this quarantine. Um, and, and and you know this the question that's been asked to me which i want to put to you is why isn't there a documentary for example like cities of light or like the steps of hussein or you know these documentaries that we might see on on muslim tv or on, on specifically on on uh, channels that uh, teach the teachings of the ahlul bayt why can't see why can't we see these some of these documentaries on such platforms so you have to look at the, you know, as we say in Islam, everything starts with intention, with niyyah. So a company like Netflix, it's designed to generate money. So you can call it a, a capitalistic uh, endeavor, right? So a company like Netflix or Amazon Prime or any of these uh, companies that are des- Disney or, or, or whatever that is designed to generate income and money, they will produce content that is, for example, titillating or it, it is to entertain. And sometimes within that entertainment, there will be some values of education. So if the intention from beginning is to produce something that wants to capture your attention and bring you in. Now, if you look, many people are not interested to. A lot of people have difficulty with their spirituality. And this is 100 uh, percent can be proven because you can see the. High, ri- high rates of depression, high rates of suicide, you know, a lot of uh, mental health issues. And these come from uh, various things. And one of them is a lack of spirituality. So a lot of people have these issues, but they don't know that uh, I need to go and, you know, feed my uh, spiritual side as much as I need to feed my body. So because of that system that people are not interested to kind of watch uh, uh, spiritual documentaries or, or, or religious documentaries uh, these companies like Netflix they're not interested to purchase and put it on their uh, platforms for you to watch I've approached a lot of um, uh, mainstream channels terrestrial channels and every time I come up with a concept of how to bring uh, the, the kind of culture and the vibrancy of the Muslim life in Iran or in Iraq or something like that into the context of a, a British or Canadian individual, the channel is always like, uh, it seems interesting, but it's not for our audience. So there's one aspect which is about generating income. And there's another aspect where people who hold the reins, who hold the control and power of what is seen are people who don't have a positive uh, um, approach or positive 
uh, understanding or perspective of Islam and Muslims. Sometimes outwardly they will show that respect, but inwardly they don't make an effort to try and show it in a positive way. And we see this constantly around us in media. There's always a constant um, uh, lack of unease for Muslims when they watch programs where Muslims are depicted most of the time. I'm not saying always. There's never a general, uh, 100% uh, generality and everything. But most times the representation that we see in mainstream media, so be it in film, be it in uh, documentaries, be it in the news or, or newspapers or online news, any of this stuff is mostly negative. So when the coronavirus is happening and the first series of uh, doctors who die in the NHS are Muslim, of brown skin, have foreign names and they come from the Middle East, no national mainstream newspaper puts them on the front page. Why is that? Did they not die for the NHS that is the front line that everybody comes out on the 8 o'clock and claps for? Is this not the same NHS that we keep seeing in the um, uh, news that stay home, protect the NHS? Are these not the new uh, kind of saviors of society? But when if, if, if the same time one person committed a crime and that person, for whatever reason, had psychological issues but shouted the words Allahu Akbar, the first thing you see on the front uh, of the uh, mainstream uh, national newspapers will be that person's face and it will be the worst terrorist and the worst Muslim next to it. So there's a deep-rooted, uh, institutionalized, racist, Islamophobic. And I'll explain to you what I mean by racist because Islam is not a race. But racist, Islamophobic perspective of Muslims in Islam that affects programs, uh, platforms like Netflix, affects mainstream uh, news outlets like the BBC, like the CNN, like the New York Times, The Sun, even Daily, Ma Daily Mirror, 100% Daily Mail, that always wants to bring down the group of people who are brown and Muslims by bringing them down, elevating the, the European, white Europeans. Now, when I say these things, I'm not, being, I'm not doing it with a racist intent, okay? I'm not trying to use identity politics to separate white people from brown people. This is not what I'm trying to do. But when you start reading the history of how imperialism and colonialism impacted the world from Africa to, Latin, to America, North America, Latin America, Australia, Asia, Middle East, you can see a pattern where when Europeans, which at that time were ethnically mostly white, and they moved to countries like Af continents like Africa and continents like Asia, brown, yellow, whatever. Um, I'm using these terms brown and, and yellow just to simplify, but obviously it's more complicated than that, just to simplify it. When they moved to these continents and they took the resources, India, before the British went there with the East India Trading Company and then completely colonized the continent of uh, subcontinent of India, that in India had uh, the GDP of 27% of the whole world. That means a quarter of the whole world's uh, wealth was in one continent. This is India. So it was the America of that time, two, three hundred years ago. England come in, Britain comes in, colonizes it, takes the resources, takes the wealth, and then depletes and destroys that country and then leaves it and then gives it this independence. So it has to rebuild everything up from uh, back uh, from the beginning. 
So when you have this kind of dynamic of power and within power is the financing, the money, it trickles down to now where we are in 2020. Companies that control most of what we see are Western companies, especially if you live in the West, 100%. And even if you're in the East or Africa or whatever, most of the films that is generally produced and seen are, are films made in the West and mainly Hollywood. Hollywood consisting of five, six major companies that are producing most of what we see. So these kind of media companies are not a vacuum of what hap what's happened in history and the way that uh, specifically because we're Muslim, we're talking about Muslim identity as well as other ethnic minorities and ethnic uh, uh, people are represented. Muslims are represented, comes from that history. And if you look, America is not 100% white European. There's a massive mix of Chinese, African-American and uh, uh, Asian mixed in there. However, for some reason, most of the people in power in America, and I use America more than England, because England, there's a less, uh, the population which are of um, uh, ethnic mix are smaller. In America, it's much bigger. There's less people of ethnic mix who are in political power. There's a much smaller uh, participation of people of ethnic background in position of power within the media industry or within the, uh, even within the education system. So everything that we can think of that makes a society believe what the parameters of that society are is the education system, is the media system, the financial system, and the uh, political system is mainly led by people who have white Anglo-Saxon heritage. Now, this is not a bad thing on its own, but how can someone who's never experienced racism, like some, a woman who, who wears hijab, who goes to university, who goes to work, the amount of Islamophobia she faces, the amount of Islamophobia a woman who's African-American or a man who's African-American, who racism that he experiences, how can a person who's had the privilege of never being, uh, never felt racism or experienced racism like they have, how can they put themselves in the place of that ethnic group and then say, you know what, you're right, we don't have as much uh, documentaries or films that show the perspective of the world from uh, different groups. It's mainly always being a white man who comes and saves the day. How many films have we seen where Indiana Jones comes and saves the day, when people in Star Wars are all white. This is even popular culture. We're not even talking about reality. We're talking about popular culture, where you can put in people of color or people of different ethnicities or religion values. Because the person who makes, the one who's right at the top, makes the final decision of what is of value to be broadcast and shared is a person who only has a specific perspective and it, he doesn't see the world from the very different colorful perspectives of other ethnicities this is why me and you when we sit down to watch netflix occasionally we'll see something like the new series that's come out called malcolm x and his biography or how he was murdered and we get really excited and yet most of everything other else again i'm not 100 percent generalizing because you see sometime a program from turkey for example article that's on Netflix. Reason why that's on Netflix is because it's done so well uh, abroad that it said, bring it in. It's going to, you know, uh, generate some money for us. It's good. So this is the, some of the reason it goes back to two, three hundred years of how the, the, the Europeans saw the world in a political 
and a capitalistic way and it feeds into our media now and then it becomes important for people like you people like me to discuss it find the ways of engaging with it without losing our identity without losing what we value is our culture and our ethnicity and our values by bringing that and adding that as a flavor to this recipe of different kind of uh, productions that go on without losing what we have and influence that it's not easy it's going to be very hard but if we don't make the effort, it's not going to happen. And no one gives you anything on a silver platter, especially in a society where it's run by profit margins and stuff like that. We have to fight for it and make the effort. And alhamdulillah, I, I noticed that more Muslims are becoming um, uh, financially and politically and media savvy about what's going on. And as we become a bigger part of Britain and American society and Australian society and Canadian society, and we have that financial wealth. Financial wealth equates to financial power. And financial power equates to, to politics. Is when we have to get involved and say, okay, we need to have a better representation in politics and in media because we also hold uh, financial power. Uh, that, that's, it's really interesting, you know, uh, all the stuff that you mentioned. I just want to pick up on one point quickly. If I, if I, and you, you did mention that you'll, you'll explain it. Um, Maybe I missed it. The fact that you know you you mention racism and, and someone might come and the, the, uh, state the obvious question that Islam is not a race, and you you mentioned it maybe more than once that you know a Muslim woman may be wearing a headscarf and might fa face racism. How does the race come into come into this? And I know you you're studying obviously um, your PhD now, which is which is. Um, you know, Muslim representation in the Muslim and Islam representation in the media. So um, the way that uh, the relationship between so if you look, it's about the Orient, so the East and the Occident, the West. The way that Europe, Europe was quite uh, ethnically um, similar, right? It's only now that we have different parts of the world who, who've moved to European countries and you start seeing variation in ethnicity. Mostly it was white, right? So when you had Europe and it was and it found a way of generating more uh, capital, more money, more wealth by going to uh, other parts of the world, conquering them, taking them by force, killing people, taking their wealth, capturing them as slaves, taking them to the Americas and using my slaves to make money or going around to India, taking, you know, uh, the wealth of that country and other parts of the world. They said, OK. When you start going and colonizing other parts of the world, you have to, when you start doing that, you have to make a reasoning for it. And the reasoning is, for them, was to make money. But you can't say, we've come here to make money out of you, because then the people there will start resisting and fighting. And a lot of places they did. So you say, look, we've come here to bring you civilization. Okay? And what do we mean by civilization? Well, you guys don't know how to use, um, you know, this kind of clothing that we have. You guys don't believe in the same things that we believe. Having lighter skin shows that you're better. So slowly, slowly, ideologies are created and invented and planted against the people that you're trying to colonize. So it comes to the point where India has been independent for how many years? But when you go to India, someone who has a lighter skin, for some reason, male, female, whatever, has a better chance of finding a spouse because lighter skin is looked upon uh, uh, more favorably you go to parts of africa women spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars getting creams and medication to lighten their skin where did this come from 
This is so the racism that was implanted into these parts of the world by the white Europeans still uh, persists to today. Okay, so then you come to the point of Islam and racism. So majority of relationship between the West uh, European powers, which are mainly French and um, British and some uh, German academics, the majority of relationship they had with which was in the last three, four hundred years was either with Turkey, because at that time the Ottoman Empire was the powerful Muslim uh, kind of rival to the West, or when they started kind of infiltrating and taking over the lands of the Middle East, it was the Arabs. Okay, so when they saw Muslims, they would majority in their head think of the Middle East or the greater Middle East. So from Turkey all the way down to Egypt and Arabia, at that time Arabia, Iraq, Mesopotamia, Levant, even Iran. So for them, the idea of religion and uh, Islam kind of started merging together. Because if you want to kind of uh, bring a group of people down, you have to give them traits to identify that group of people. How do you identify Muslims? If Islam was from Maghreb, Morocco, all the way to Indonesia, they don't have the same language. They don't look the same. So what you start doing is you start categorizing uh, things that are kind of look Muslim or Muslimic, you know, as we joke about now. So dark skin, uh, Arabic language. They say, okay, fine, Indonesians don't speak it, but we just use Arabic language as the kind of signifier of what um, a Muslim is. Obviously, not all Muslims are Arab and not all Arabs are Muslim. So, so they started adding signifiers, things that identify uh, racial traits, uh, and then they said, you know what, let's just say that all Arabs are Muslims and all Muslims are Arab. This will be easier for us. So when, for example, now you see people come in, the British had uh, colonized India. So for them, when you say uh, Muslim, the first thing that comes into the nowadays, also Arab uh, Muslims come into mind because the last 20, 30 years of the migration of uh, uh, Arabic Muslims who've come to England but if it was 30, 40 years ago if you said Muslim to a British person the first thing they would think of would be someone from Pakistan or India okay if you go to America the first um, 20, 30 years ago if you said Muslim it wouldn't be Arabs it would have been the black people because of nation of Islam nation of Islam was the big thing so religion of uh, Islam was uh, mixed with the identity of black people from nation of Islam Okay, so this is how the racism starts to uh, creep in. Then you have presidents in America right now who like, we're going to ban um, uh, Muslims coming into this country. Then he brings a ban in. Now in his ban, he includes majority of what people? People who have Arabic identity or Middle Eastern identity. He hasn't banned Muslims of Malaysia. He hasn't banned Muslims of Indonesia. He hasn't banned Muslims of China. He's banned Muslims who are either from North Africa or from the Middle East. So you start seeing the pattern again come back where he's mixing religion and race together. It's almost subconscious, then it becomes, becomes conscious. So when we discuss racism and Islamophobia, you have to understand how, uh, how demonizing people of certain races is used to then demonize people of certain ideology, which is mainly um, uh, Islam. You don't really see demonizing of Christianity. You don't see demonizing of Judaism, of Hinduism. Even though all of these religions, they have people who are extreme in them. And you can see the extremism in India at the moment, where groups of Hindus are attacking Muslims. 
or Buddhists in um, Myanmar attacking Muslims or Christians within parts of Africa and uh, and other parts of the world attacking Muslims. And we can see, uh, you know, parts within the Middle East and Palestine and is Israeli issue. But that's not really discussed. But the Islamophobia and Islam is racialized, uh, is connected with uh, race. So it becomes easier to become racist towards. Because, and I'll give you an example. If you have only attacking Islam, and yet someone who's of a white heritage, so you have someone whose parents, and we have a lot of converts or reverts to Islam, who whose parents are maybe 10, 20, 30 generation white Anglo-Saxon English, or white American, and for whatever reason, they've found the path of Islam, and they've accepted it, and they become Muslim. Which category do you put that person in? How can you become racist towards him when he's a white person so you make islam become almost like a religion so even if he's white and he's accepted islam you can be um against him by using using the racist signifiers that they've attached to anyone who's muslim and that's a kind of a, a very crude i've kind of explained it in a very crude obviously it's more complicated than that and there's more uh, historical uh, connections to it but that's the the crude and simple way of when you see racism and islamophobia um, it's, it's some people even some of the scholars who are uh, anti uh, anti um, islamophobia sorry when i say anti-islamophobia i mean they they don't agree that islamophobia islamophobia exists they say that the, the term islamophobia is invented there's no justification for it muslims are free to do whatever they want to do uh, as long as they follow the value system of the country they're in, for example, ex uh, England. So if that value system says, we now decided as a value system, niqab is bad, you shouldn't wear it. For example, in France, hijab is bad, you're not allowed to wear it. If you don't follow that value system, you're a bad Muslim, you, you, you don't deserve to be part of that society. And then COVID-19 happens and then says, no, everybody who goes outside of the house has to cover their face. Now, that's the new value system, okay? We as Muslims say, look, within our religion, everyone who wants to practice uh, the way they want to conduct themselves uh, is up to them. But in our religion, we don't shake hands with women. Uh, men don't shake hands with women. Women don't shake hands with men who are not um, lawful to each other, who are not mahram to each other. Well, that's really disrespectful to our values, to our British values, to our American values. COVID-19 happens. Please make sure you're two meters apart. Don't shake hands. It's against our values at this current time. The value system within the West is not fixed. It moves up and down as it chooses for whatever reason. Okay. Our values as Muslims, a lot of the values that we have are fixed. In the Quran and in the Sunnah and in the tradition of the Holy Prophet. It's not changed. So when it suits the value system of a um, society like in the West where it's liberal, it's decided by individuals, it's not fixed in anything eternal, like for us in the Quran is eternal. They've left the Bible and for them, you know, it's whatever we decide as individual society. When it, when it doesn't suit them, they don't like it, they bring it down. When it suits them, they tolerate it. So this sense of racism is used because they want to bring things down and bring themselves up, unfortunately. And that's why the way I look at, and a lot of scholars now, they look at uh, Islamophobia, is entangled with uh, race and in the way that the signifiers are added to bring Muslims down. <clears throat> Interesting points you mentioned. 
I just want to go back to this point about the media representation of of, of Muslims, uh, and then you have you know you're, you're saying that the the media, uh, and you mentioned a few outlets they, the, where they pick on Muslims where the and 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 I recently or not recently a few months ago there was there was this article that you know the 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 media uh, often misrepresents Muslims and this 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 leads to a lot of. Um, a lot of issues for the Muslims, a lot of issues for 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 for, for people living in, in 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 a society that is um, and they're being portrayed in the wrong way. But at the same time, <clears throat> you have people like Anjam Choudhury, you have people like ISIS, you have a lot of other people like the I forgot his name, the guy with the hook. You have you have all these Abu Hamza, whatever his name was. You have all these people coming out and speaking uh, in the name of Islam. You have uh, people that maybe are anti-Semitic. You have people that uh, that uh, are, are Muslims but themselves are racists. Where <clears throat> they're not really, you know, and me and you know that they're not really the, 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 the real representation of Islam. Yet they're coming out and they're saying we're the real representation. Now this leads to two issues, which I want you, which I'm hoping you can, you can, you can um, give me your feedback on. Which is one, so Sky, you, you us saying, you know, the media is not representing us in the best way, is sort of our fault because we've got these guys coming out and they're saying we we represent, uh, we're, we're the real Muslims and we're the leaders of the Muslims. Um, I forgot the guy that comes on LBC, the radio presenter. Anyway, um, we're the real. Ahsent uh, Majid Nawaz and he's saying you know that he represents the the true uh, teachings of Islam or whatever it is and he's you know he's he's sort of you can say um, you can say what you want and then and then you've got and you've got that's so that's the first problem and then the second the second issue is I feel is if there if these guys are not <clears throat> the real uh, representation of Islam where is the real representation of Islam why are and and this again I, I, I this is my point of view i'll put my hands up and say we don't have enough uh leaders in our communities again i'm, I'm i don't want to generalize there's there's many great people out there that are doing great work but i'm, I'm talking you know in general uh, other than you know i don't want to point fingers there are alhamdulillah a lot of people doing great work behind the scenes there's a lot of people uh, that are leading their small communities what I'm talking about, you know, what the media see is there's not enough uh, leaders that are saying this is the true Islam, the way uh, a Muslim should represent himself and people that we don't want to represent us like ISIS and Daesh for four or five years before that Al-Qaeda, the likes of Osama Bin Laden this, you know, the 7-7 bombing, the 9-11, September 11th uh, uh, airplane crash into the World Trade Center all these incidents why why is there why is it muslims that are, are doing this so you know you're sort of if, if, I'm, if i'm speaking for the media you're sort of putting yourself in that position by doing these actions by terrorizing the world and then you're saying we're, we're misrepresenting you and of course this is this is uh you can say a a, a normal person's thinking whereas you know someone like yourself who's who's, who's done a, a phd on this will who's doing a phd on this will have, uh, like you said, you know, while looking at the past, you'll have a better understanding of this. So that's uh, very, uh, two very important uh, questions that you've asked. They're very uh, valuable. And we'll try to kind of like open them up, dissect them and 
try to answer them so the audience and uh you know we have a better understanding how the actual system of creating images and representation works so if you can understand that society has its parameters what we call common sense uh, Antonio Gramsci, uh, Marxist uh, theorist, come up with the culture uh, with the concept of cultural hegemony. That means that the societies, for example, the free democratic societies, not the dictatorship ones, the free society, how are they managed? What are the parameters of what they deem to be acceptable and unacceptable? These are created by the educational, media, and political establishments. So we have politicians who compare women in niqab to post boxes, okay? We have a large proportion of the conservative membership who uh, uh, believe that uh, Islam is a bad religion or Muslims are following a bad religion. So many other examples of uh, uh, re representations where in the political spectrum we have uh, a bad image of Islam to start off with, okay? Then I'll come to the other question of the, the bad Muslims in a minute. But let's, let's start with that, where we are at the moment. Then you have the media which perpetuate that ideology as well. So they will always mostly show the negative image, but they were uh, less likely to show the positive or the neutral image. So as a viewer, if you don't have a relationship with a Muslim and understand Islam, you constantly are, are fed the negative image of Islam and Muslims. Okay, then within the uh, educational establishment, so be it from the secondary school all the way to university, there isn't a, um, a fair representation of Islam Muslims. It's starting to change. We have Muslims who are participating in producing the curriculum. It's slow, but it's happening, but it's not there yet, right? So if you go to SOAS University uh, and you want to write an essay or whatever, and you want to quote a, a scholar, say Ayatollah Sistani, or a scholar who has millions of followers, who's respected within the Muslim and even outside of the Muslim community when the head of UN goes to visit. If you want to refer to him, he's not acceptable because he's not academic. So the, the higher education establishments decide what is acceptable as knowledge and wisdom and what isn't. Even though these people have studied for many years and they could, you know, out knowledge and out uh, uh, um, uh, wise anyone that they fear in, anyone that they face in a western uh, profession uh, professorship but they're not you're not allowed to refer to them because they're not academic they're not accepted with our with our institutions again so through media through politics and through education what is accepted is is put into um, a uh, parameters so you have to try and work with that really tight parameter then we come to the to the uh, understanding of um, uh, the reality of uh, I think the current uh, population of Muslims in Britain is like 2.5, 3 million Muslims. Now, out of this 3 million Muslims, how many are Anjam Chowdhury? How many are uh, Abu Hamza? You know, how many are actual convicted terrorists? 100, 200, 1,000? Do they even get to the point of 1%? However, what percentage of the news that we see in mainstream media is negative compared to a percentage that is not? You see, when you look at the reality and the facts, why is it not in proportion to the population that exists in this country who are dentists and doctors and nurses and engineers and people who are... Um, serving the community people who are 
creating ideas and technology that is helping the community why is that percentage for some reason not spoken about and put aside but a small fringe of people who have clearly mental issues who have clearly political agendas and issues they are put forward as the representation of what the muslim community and what the islamic ideology is and the terminology used islamist jihadists terms that have nothing to do with uh, war or negativity main main interpretation of uh, the word jihad within islam is for self struggle but that's not used the lesser meaning of it is used and that lesser meaning is when there's a time of war and you need to defend your your land is to uh, uh, participate in jihad but the word jihad is taken to be to be meant as a negative thing even though the positive the main reason of it that is taught within islam and all muslims know is not expressed or discussed so that's that for example and when you see people like isis or al-qaeda or the taliban or any terrorist organization they for somehow become more representative than the rest of the 1.8 billion muslim that exist in the whole world the 200 million muslims in indonesia the 150 million muslims in india millions of muslims in north america north africa and millions of muslims in the western world all of a sudden they have no voice or what happens is the media represents them as a silent contributor or silent supporter of what's happening uh, with ISIS and al-Qaeda secretly muslims support them that's the other agenda that they push so you constantly as a muslim be you a muslim leader or muslim individual have to explain every single time an incident happens and the person purports to be a muslim or shouts allahu akbar you have to explain this is not islam i am a muslim i don't agree with this i don't agree with that this is not what rt every single time you have to come and apologize but when western uh, powers go and bomb uh, 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 middle east to the stone age when they support terrorist organizations that take over parts of the middle east and ravage or they support another muslim country that is bombing uh, a small poor muslim country to annihilation all of a sudden no person of uh, english or american or white heritage has to explain oh i don't agree with our government i don't agree with that ideology but somehow we do so we always put into the context of defending so we're already behind okay that's the situation that the whole uh, racism and islamophobia begins with of of a point of you're wrong explain to me why you're not wrong okay then we come to your uh, second question of representation um which i alluded to uh, just now slightly is that we have a lot of positive representation but none of the media want to approach it we have many learned scholars in the uk alone you know we in the shia community we joke that uh, london is the najaf or the qom of europe there's places where we have hosa or seminary islamic schools i've studied in one of them i got my masters in one of them we have some of the most eloquent and well spoken and knowledgeable and beautiful scholars that exist both in the shia and within the sunni uh, group of islam in london and the whole of uk but they never sought to be asked the question they always go towards the ones who are extreme give them the platform because that 
extreme platform reinforces the Islamophobic and racism that they, as a media, political and educational uh, groupings, uh, purport to be the representation of Islam. So no matter uh, what happens, something bad that happens, you're just hoping, God, please don't let it be a Muslim or anything to do with Islam. But that, that's, that's not fair. That's not how um, Western democracy works. You're innocent until proven guilty. You can't be guilty by, they, they try to make you guilty by association. And it's not even your association. It's an association that is so um, uh, superficial and so unconnected just because someone is Muslim and then does something that makes the whole of the religion and the whole of group of grouping of people that follow that religion uh, put into a negative context because again, what the media, the politicians and the educational system pushes forward. Reza, uh, it's been a really interesting discussion. Um, I thank you for your time. I definitely, definitely want to do a part two on this. There's, I feel so much to speak about. Um, I'm not so well, I'll admit, I'm not so well versed with this within this topic. So I want to learn more. Uh, that This gives me now the opportunity, as we mentioned, when it comes to when you create a film or when you do a lecture or whatever, to do more. So hopefully, inshallah, I can, I can read up more about this. Uh, get into it but I, I'm really I've really enjoyed today's podcast uh, may Allah bless you shower you with 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 many blessings during this holy month uh, protect you and your loved ones and thank you for taking time out thank you Reza. thank you very much and I pray that the, our community and the wider community benefits from this holy month and may Allah support you and Alibay TV and all the podcasts and all the programs that you participate in awesome